calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Story Smack. This is episode 76 of Story Smack. Uh, Story Smack is a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is A.B. Sigler, and I'm an audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. I'm joined each week by New York number one times best-selling no- <laughs> number one New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler and screenwriter Rob Otto. How are you today, gentlemen? Uh, good. Yeah. Doing very good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I believe we have we have, <laughs> we, we have both chosen to accept the mission, and now it's self-destructing. Yes. Yes. There you go. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, this week, if you guys can't tell, we are discussing the 1996 blockbuster Mission Impossible. FDO, can you give us the uh, movie guide? Sure, synopsis? sure. Here we go. Let's see. When a U.S. government operative, Ethan Hunt, and his mentor, Jim Phelps, go on a covert assignment that takes a disastrous turn, Jim is killed, and Ethan becomes the prime number and suspect. Now a fugitive, Hunt recruits brilliant hacker Luther Stickle and maverick pilot Franz Krieger to help him sneak into a heavily guarded CIA building to retrieve a confidential computer file that will prove his innocence. <laughs> there you go. So before we jump right in, I do want to uh, see how you're doing if you guys are listening and not watching the three hosts two of us are co-located and one of us is not so how are you rob i am excellent um the good news is um i don't have to be co-located because i take enough space for two people so it's really working out well (laughs) (laughs) having the kraken's jersey to your left basically makes it look like just two people there anyway so you're My other left. Your other left, exactly. Thank you. Um, And each week we make a cocktail. It can be themed if it can be themed. This week the movie that we're going to discuss is Mission Impossible. So here on the left coast, I made two separate drinks. I made an Impossible Mission and a Mission Impossible. They are two different cocktails. Scott, you have the Impossible Mission, which is a beautiful drink. Very gorgeous. um, I'm not sure if you're going to like the way it tastes, so uh, if you happen to be watching this cast, keep an eye on his face. Let's it, find it out. It could be great, but it, it might not be. There's some peppery stuff in here and things on the cinnamon on crust top. on the rim. Cinnamon. Okay, here we go. Gold-dusted sugar on the rim. <laughs> it grows on you. I it's think a it, little herbaceous. Let me one more try. Well... Maybe it'll grow in. It's little, got the sweet stuff in there. So, okay. and what do you and got, baby? I'm what drinking. I, what, uh, I, what I love is that's the worst thing I ever tasted. Let me give it another taste. <laughs> hey, you know, when I was younger, that would be like, gosh, this is terrible. Try it. So, at mm-hmm. least we've elevated from there. I am drinking the Impossible Mission. The Impossible Mission looks delicious. It should be delicious. It is Bailey's Kahlua and green chartreuse. So okay. Who knows? Wow. Let's see. 
less delicious than it, than it should be. Okay. How about you, Robbie? Right. Well, oh, so I went for oh. a, uh, a an impossible shot of vodka, just like they celebrated the beginning scene. <laughs> as far as I know, it's not drugged. Um, and what makes it impossible is I'm drinking it out of my oh, Tennessee Titans. Titans shot glass. <laughs> and the Tennessee Titans did not exist when this movie came out. Oh, wow. So. Very Zaz- nicely done. Zazdrovia. <laughs> I love it. Very nicely done. Oh, my goodness gracious. So To kick things off, oh, baby, let's wow. talk about... Okay. A chaser would have been a smart idea. A chaser idea. would have been a smart idea. <laughs> now you can sit there and you can steep in it, brother. Steep in it. Yay, We're going to talk yay, about yay. general box office release. Uh, a, why don't you tell us about the financials of this flick? Sure. Uh, I always do the math work here because I'm not a writer, and these two guys are, and I understand writers are bad at math. So um, the, the original Mission Impossible, which from here on out uh, we will be calling MI1, um, even though it's just called Mission Impossible. And this is your official spoiler alert before we talk about anything else. Here we go, you guys. It uh, came out in 1996, and it cost $80 million to make, uh, which today would be about $141 million. But that's okay, because it's since made 457.7 or sorry, million 1996 dollars, which okay. today would be 806.8 million dollars. So that eight, that, that uh, $80, and, uh, $80 million dollar budget was just fine. Just and fine. the whole franchise is up at $1.2 billion yeah, now. Yeah, it's yeah. one of, it's yeah, huge. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that's not adjusted for inflation. True. So, yeah. I, true, true, I, true. I think they did okay. I think they did yeah, quite and, fine. And I think we're going to talk a lot about this, um, uh, that... We'll we'll get into it in a little bit, but I find it like this is par for the course for this entire franchise, which is a little mm-hmm. batshit crazy and a little fantastic all at once, all the time. So um, we're going to talk a little. Right. We always start this um, by talking about our favorite moments about the movie. Uh, Robbie, do you want to go first? I, I will go first because I need to talk about the most important thing. And despite the fact that it launched a billion dollar franchise, the best movie would have been the first 10 minutes, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that IMF team that included the uncredited cameo from Emilio Estevez as Jack Harmon, who I am dressing in honor of today, it's that exciting. team was great. And that team really, you know, epitomized what the, the television show in the 60s was. The team with each one having their own specialty mm-hmm. and they each work together and they've been working together a long time so that they know exactly what the other person is going to do. And they can get into these situations, but they can get out using awesome teamwork. That, of course, gets all destroyed in the first 10 minutes of the movie and then it becomes a Tom Cruise vehicle with some sidekicks that he's never worked with before. So I'm just saying the original IMF team would have been a much better movie and maybe been a $2 billion franchise. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm an interesting thing. And we'll talk Jack a little. Jack Harmon, here's to you. We'll talk a little bit about that more as we get into discussing the movie, of course, because this is a big part of things, um, the difference between the series and, mm-hmm. and this. But I will say that my favorite um, part of the, it starts in that same part, and the best version of it is in those same 10 minutes. But it actually goes throughout the whole show, which is, I love that each MI team member in the IMF team and also after are completely um, they are completely counted on. They are completely trusted. They are, you know, they are all the things I, I guess Ethan doesn't trust anybody. But other than that, mm-hmm. and it, it is completely irrespective of their 
mostly of their physicality and absolutely of their gender. So mm-hmm. in the very, very beginning, there's one scene where Kristen Scott Thomas and, and uh, Tom Cruise are up. They are pretending to make out so that they can surveil at cross points. And that's the closest we get, really, to any sexy times, except for in mm-hmm. the trailer uh, where, where Claire and Ethan kissed that never made it yeah. into the movie. Yeah. That's the closest we really get. And, and it's it's a big psychological thriller in a way. And that totally works. And I love that that was 1996 and and. And I never even thought about it until I had to start thinking about what we would talk about for the script. And I, I kind of love that. You don't see a lot of that back in the day. No, you don't. And you don't Good see point. a lot of that it's now great either. Point. What about you? Uh, my favorite part of the movie is Ving Rhames, just across the board. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> the second he shows up on screen, you're like, okay, Brian De Palma and the casting director said, we need someone who looks extraordinarily cool here. <laughs> How about Ving Rhames? Wait, put some sunglasses on him. Okay, that... Totally, totally. It's just like, it just, just oozes cool when you see him on the screen, which is fun because he's the computer hacker. He's supposed yeah. to be the nerdy guy, he, and there he is. He's the nerd. Yeah. He's the nerd. And you know, that's actually a pretty good point about Ving Rames across the board in movies, too. I can't, I can't really think of a not cool Ving Rames. Yeah. He's, <laughs> some, some people just have that, uh, have that air about them, and he, he certainly does. I did not know that Emilio Estevez was not credited because it's not a cameo. He's got many lines of dialogue. He's got like sure. at least two minutes of screen time, maybe three. Yeah, and mm-hmm. we'll we'll uh, talk about it. Robbie okay. brought it up. Yeah, but we'll, we'll talk we'll about it a little bit it. later that that was a purposeful choice, actually. Okay. Yeah. 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 But why don't we go start talking a little bit about the cast and crew, and then we'll get go from there into uh, some of the fun stuff that we want to talk about. Through yeah, all this. Okay. Hold yeah, on. it's all good. Uh, Go and get started, Mr. De Palma, babe. So this uh, movie was directed by Brian De Palma. And if you're unfamiliar with Brian De Palma, you are absolutely not unfamiliar with mm-hmm. Brian De Palma's work. Uh, he is considered one of the kings of what is called the new Hollywood class of directors. Okay. That includes Scorsese, the, that era of directors. Mm-hmm. And um, he is responsible uh, before Mission Impossible and since Mission Impossible, other things. But before Mission Impossible, for many, many thrillers that you already know and love, he directed K. Harry in 1976. Oh, wow. He directed Dress to Kill, which has autobiographical stories from his youth in it, which I find fascinating when you find mm-hmm. out which ones those are. Um, he directed Scarface, little film you may have heard of, little friend you may have heard of called Scarface. <laughs> he directed The Untouchables in 1987. He directed Carlito's Way in 1993 and, of Dang. course, many, many more movies. So yeah. he is truly a gifted director for psychological thrillers, which when he brings that to bear for Mission Impossible... I think works terribly well. Uh, next up is our star, Mr. Tom Cruise. Of course, Tom Cruise. Let's get to Mr. Tom Cruise here. Gosh darn, I'm having a devil of a time. <laughs> All the technology's going south on me. It's crazy. That's more Mr. De Palma. That's more. That's what Mr. Palma. Palma looks like today. <laughs> That's Mr. Hi, Brian. Oh. Tom Cruise is dun, the. Dun, <laughs> Hi, Brian. Dun, Robin, dun, they're on first name basis. Tom Cruise dun. got this film made. He was a fan of the original show, and who wasn't? It is a little bit dated, I think. Rob and I watched it when we were kids, when reruns and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's just it was such a such a tight, awesome weekly yeah. installment, and he wanted to adapt it for the big screen for Paramount Pictures, who owned the rights. It was Cruise's first producer credit as well. George Clooney was offered the part of Ethan Hunt, but he turned it down due to work to work in one fine day. Bruce Willis. In one fine day. John Travolta. <laughs> Nicholas Not Cage. Not a billion dollar franchise, by Ralph the way. Ralph Fiennes and Mel Gibson were later considered for the part before Tom Cruise got the role. So if Let's I'm following pause. this right, it, he he wanted to get it done. It was a producer and they were casting yeah. other people for the part? Yes. That's, that's the part I'm 
my brain is caught on. Yeah. But it kind of makes sense in a, in a way, right? Because he, one thing that Tom Cruise has done right his entire career is quite early on, he teams up with Kathleen Kennedy. And this is his first producer credit. So it is possible that, you know, Kathleen Kennedy had been around the block a few times by then, too, as had Tom Cruise. And maybe they were like, all right, you know what? You know how it goes. Every time you want a role, you show up for a role. Val Kilmer's there. Whoever is yeah. there. There are other people there. We're going to have to do the same thing, but it's fine. You're going to get it. It's in the bag, Tommy. No big deal. And so they go through all of that because that's the way that the studio heads and the people spending money are okay with it. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, well, geez, Tom Cruise is already there and he's Tom freaking Cruise. Let's just cast him. And then they feel great because they feel like it's their and idea. And here is the best part, you guys. The absolute best part is Tom Cruise deferred his $20 million fee for a percentage of the box office takings. And as we've already covered, <laughs> he's, he's got more money than George Lucas selling Star Wars toys. It's just an enormous amount of money. Out, I'd say that I'd say that worked out. For yeah, him. it okay. worked out pretty well. And I'm, I'm going to guess with God, Robbie. I want to know how that conversation goes, though. Tom Cruise, hey, I'll add my clout to this. I loved this TV series. Let's get it. Let's produce it. Let's go. I'm all in. Great. Let's cast George Clooney. Like, like, how does that? How does, <laughs> well, how does that conversation? I mean, go? you you look at it, and Tom Cruise <laughs> perhaps is a tiny bit young for the part. He yeah. looks like a little kid around this cast of people. Even Emilio West has a similar age group. He's just always looked young. He still does not look his age Agreed. at all, even though he's Agreed. 62 now. Um, so that could have been part of it, but you know, as Ani's rewatch, he's Tom Cruise and he's Popcorn Central, and it worked out great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, yeah. I mean, who knows? It also could be like him giving back him him deferring his twenty million dollar fee, also could have been working the Hollywood system and taking a bet because one thing that he knew that is very clearly true, he and Kathleen Kennedy knew at the time was like, cool, we can't pull Mission Impossible from the '60s into the future. That's not going to work. This is not mm-hmm. the way the world works anymore. This is not the way spying works anymore. But we can take the framework of that and turn it on its head, which is why you have um, Phelps in there in the beginning. He's the only named character from the series who joins, and he's a wholly different character. Yeah. And I think that that sort of works to set everything on its head. So if they were like, sure, you want to do the dog and pony show for this first Mission Impossible? Great. And now they own so much of it. Both yeah. of them own so much of it. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they're made. They're made. And speaking of Mr. Phelps, Rob, tell us about John Voight. I mean— John Voight, I feel like if I have to give you John Voight's resume, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Right? <laughs> exactly I, mean, right. I don't know how you accidentally clicked play on this, but uh, and, and listen, we want as many listeners as we can. But uh, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe go find a Pokemon podcast or something. Maybe that'll be more your speed. John Voight, listen, all you got to say is Midnight Cowboy Deliverance. Mm-hmm. OK, and then 300 things since then. Okay? Yeah. Oh, for John Deliverance. Voight is yeah, totally. Absolute re- Oh, and listen, just on top of everything else, uh, also sired Angelina Jolie. So yep. thanks, John. We're, we're all big fans, buddy. Big fans. So they decide to cast a guy with, with John Voight's, you know, Hollywood clout and weightiness because, and we've already said, uh, you know, spoiler alert, but Jim Phelps is the bad guy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Jim Phelps turns on the rest of the IMF team, and they figure we cast Voight a very likable character, and he's extremely likable through the whole first yeah, part of charming. the movie. I mean, he is he is the father figure. He is the brother. He is the everybody's husband. pal. Yeah. The husband, exactly right. And then he turns on everybody, and they thought, 
we cast Voight, and we name him Jim Phelps, the only name from the original series. Maybe people won't catch on that he's the bad I guy. I forgot about the history of the show and that the Phelps was the hero, so that, of course, makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people mm-hmm. go into this expect not expecting Voight to be the heel at all. That yeah. works out yeah. great. And I didn't want to talk yeah. about it when we are uh, when we were in the beginning here, but now that you've made that, uh, that spoiler uh, that he's the bad guy, I will say, mm-hmm. I also think this is why such high-powered talent was in the IMF group, right? This is why Emilio Estevez is there. Because you're like, oh, cool, Emilio Estevez, I love him. This is going to be a great movie. Oh, Mm -hmm. Kristen Scott Thomas, what? Of course it's going to be great. She's a terrific, isn't she, for an Oscar? Mm -hmm. Like, all that happens. And and then they kill them all off. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And And that's why... And none of us yeah. see at the moment. We didn't see it on the rewatch either, even though we knew it was going to happen. None of us recognized the one, the one face other than the one on the poster. Tom Cruise, of course. He's we know he's not going to get blown up. Uh, the only one who survives that is John Voight, and we never, mm-hmm. never wonder why. Why all these high-powered actors, high-powered talent, except for him, don't make it out you of the what? first ten uh, minutes. As an author, I should have been more knowledgeable of that, but now I look, I'm like, it's kind of weird they brought in me the rest of us and whacked him. Now it all makes sense. Bring in the guy pretending to be the other guy from the other thing, who's the good guy, and now he's the bad guy. I don't see that coming. And of course, uh-huh. you know, who kills Emilio Estevez, for right. S sakes? Especially since he's such he a great role. He didn't even die role. in Young Guns, for God's sakes. And, and he's he was such like, a great character in this. Did in he, this Rob, movie. did he I die wonder. in Young Guns? <laughs> What's that? Did he die in no, Young Guns? He, 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 lived? he lives to be he lives to be Brushy Bill at the end. Okay, so I'm just okay. saying. No, he survived. <laughs> um, and I wonder if the fact that they all got to work with somebody like John Voight mm-hmm. actually helped them sign on to be in only ten minutes of this movie. You know That's what I mean? Great, I, I, I'm, I'm sure it didn't hurt. Yep. Um, all they did they did consider um, Al Pacino, uh, Michael Douglas. Robert Redford, yep. any of them who would be good, but then, you know, Robert Redford couldn't pull this off as Jim Phelps and then come back in the MCU and do exactly the same thing. So thank goodness they didn't cast Robert Redford in this movie. I'm just saying. Well, and to be fair, yeah, I mean, that that's good for, for uh, sequel purposes too, but mm-hmm. um, any of those actors also would have had this same, like, oh, this is going to be fine. He's not the bad, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, Sean Dyer in the chat room says a very good point. He says, uh, well, if there was no, if they were just nobody extras that died immediately, the reveal would have been pretty obvious at the beginning. Yeah, wouldn't care. Which is a really wouldn't good care. point. Yeah, it's just so deftly done. And that's a, te- a, 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 a signature of De Palma's work is he's so good with the psychology behind the screwing yeah. with you in a thriller. All right. And that brings us now to the coolest part of the of the whole thing. There's John Voight today. I, I, think, I think A and I will just step aside for the next 15 <laughs> yeah. minutes. Go, go, go let's ahead, talk, Scott. Let's talk about Bing Rames. First of all, look at the, the white coat, the Bing maroon. Rames. What's that? I'm pointing to Bing Rames. Oh, yes. Bing Rames. The white coat. The maroon turtleneck, the costuming is completely on point. So He's, cool. Of course, Tom Cruise is basically walking around and talks half the time. But Bing Rames, you know, makes this look good. And, and he easy. just, it, 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 that that's the thing. He looked so effortless in this. And the producers cast him as Luther because they felt he was the opposite of what a hacker normally looks like, yep. which is brilliant because they made Emilio Estevez look like what a hacker looks like. And then they turn around and bring in this this uh, suave AFMF. Yeah. <clears throat> Tom Cruise and Ving Rames are the only actors who appear in every single Mission Impossible film. He was born Irving Rames. He was given the nickname Ving by his roommate at uh, what is that State, State University, University of New, New York. York at Purchase. Uh, 
his roommate, a, another nobody actor who went to acting school and never Have made anything similar. Uh, so like Stan Tucci. Oh wait, Stanley. Yeah, I wonder. Oh. Stanley Tucci. <laughs> wonder. Wonder whatever happened to that guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rame spent two years in the acting program at Sunny before transferring and graduating from Juilliard. And of course, is a huge part of possibly my favorite movie next to Aliens. Behind Aliens is Pulp Fiction. So just nice. a, nice a brilliant name. guy, and there he's Pulp Fiction, and mm-hmm. he he is he's uh, he's aging well too. Him and yeah. Tom Cruise now, both. Yeah, yeah. The thing about Vang, um, so he's this Vang. big muscular dude, yeah. right? He can get away with playing the heavy and the physical character. Does he get into a single physical confrontation in this movie? No. No. It's not one, right? Not one. And that is freaking great. Yeah. yeah. That is awesome. I love it. And, and if you I go, lo- if you, that seems to be sort of a trademark. If you go back to Pulp Fiction, he gets the crap kicked out of him twice, but he doesn't, he never brings his big, thick physicality to bear to whoop up on someone else. So like, yeah. that's part yeah, of his sure. gestalt. But here's the thing. You both did it. Uh, so he was also considered for um, Stephen King's The Green Mile for the role that went to Michael Clark Duncan. Mm-hmm. Michael yeah. Clark Duncan was is no longer with us, but he was well above 6'3". I think he was 6'5", maybe? Okay. He was a giant man. Ving Rhames, that human being on the screen right now, is six feet tall and 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. He's just huge he's just, with his personality, he's and he's strong. He's uh, he well, might be, he might be a little more that, now than 200 yeah, pounds, no, but he's the, not the, a terribly huge human being. Okay. He's just this huge, powerful person. And the, um, the fact that Tom Cruise is four foot four inches tall <laughs> probably helps. To exactly make right. Exactly bigger. right. <laughs> and then we get to uh, we get to our first supporting yeah. character, I guess you would say. And this actress has a very fascinating story. Yeah, eh? Tell us sure. about her. So this is Emmanuelle Bear, I think is how you say her last name. And and she was an actress in France and uh, before being cast in international movies. What I find fascinating about her is, her is 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 she was in this giant powerhouse of a movie and not only this movie and two interesting side points about that. She started in France as an actor and she in the 80s was an adult film actress. Mm-hmm. And if you care Hello. to, you can still find those uh, movies. Because, of course, back in the 80s, you had to go to a theater. I'll be so back in about 48 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, of course, it's France, right? And France is 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 less puritanical than, um, than, than other countries, like maybe my country. Mm-hmm. And so then she, uh, you know, she's absolutely gorgeous. She's, she's not untalented. And she tries out for mainstream movies and get cast and becomes part mm-hmm. of the mainstream movie making in France. And then she gets this movie. And then, you know, the other interesting part is it seems like her fan, her fame and acting and everything was sort of a, sort of a, a rock skip on a, on a river mm-hmm. or, or a pond because, she eventually just leaves acting, and now she's an activist uh, in in. I think she lives in Belgium now, but whatever. But like this was, it's weird to have like, oh, I might examine acting for a while. End up in a blockbuster movie that made a billion dollars in the franchise with Tom Cruise. Perhaps and she just, also gave up her fee to take a small percentage of the box office. <laughs> maybe and, she did. Yeah, maybe she did. Now owns Latvia. You know, that's yeah. that's the way that goes. Um, but uh, she, yeah, it, it's not a thing we see a lot, and especially this is her today. Um, and it's, uh, I kind of love that. And and uh, we see a few, uh, you know, the mores in, in other countries are different than the ones here. We have a couple of actors who have transitioned. 
from yes. adult movies, but really not too many. Uh, uh, so that was kind of interesting. Now we get into one of my favorite action yeah. movie actors, Gene Reno. Rob, take it away. Or even uh, Jean Reno. Jean so, Reno. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm American. Since, what do you want? Since we're, since we're in the, uh, you know, parlez-vous français portion of our program today. Okay. So, um, yeah. So Jean Reno um, comes in. He's one of the, uh, the guys who's been disavowed. And he also, like uh, Emmanuel Baer, got his start in French cinema. Um, as far as I know... None of it was pornography, but <laughs> well, hey, again, it was not. <laughs> as A said, it's France, so it's entirely possible, right? So, you know, and, and he's in a lot of excellent movies and just French movies. Mm-hmm. He's not really known outside of the continent. And then La Femme Nikita, mm-hmm. and he just explodes, and it is such a good movie. And the cool thing um, about um, Jean Reno is that there's, I think the best compliment you can give to an actor is that he seems like he's in the moment, right? I mean, the actor knows what's coming next. He even knows the words are going to be said, right? But the character has to act like this is happening for the first time, and how would I react? Mm-hmm. And John Renault just has this natural personality thing to him that he can react to what other people are saying. And whether it's, I mean, he throws a lot of comedy in with his stuff. We've seen more of that recently. We didn't really see a lot of it in Mission Impossible. But there's just, I mean, there's that moment where Tom Cruise is like, he's got, you know, the disc and he keeps doing the, the you know, the hand thing and he's hiding it and it's into my pocket and where is it? And it's over there and she's got it, he's got it, where is it? Mm-hmm. And he's just, he just stands there for like three minutes watching Tom Cruise. He doesn't say a word and yet... Everything's written on his face, and mm-hmm. you can see the gears going like, well, that son of a bitch tricked me. Damn it. And he does speak five languages, um, and he's just, uh, I don't know. You could put Jean Renault in just about, just about anything, anything, and I think he'd be great because he's I, pretty awesome. I he's think a, that's ahead. a lovely, lovely kind of encapsulation of why he's so magic, especially in this role. But we've had a couple of mentions in the chat room, of course. He he comes to an international audience with La Femme Nikita, but really makes his rocks with the, the professional. Yeah, yeah. And oh, yeah, that that's a great point. especially yeah. is so one good. of those, so what good. you're talking about is if you're acting, you know, No Women, No Kids is a huge part of that. And guess what? His first international blockbuster, he works against a kid. <laughs> a a and, female kid. And he does great, right? And, and like, that, you throw a dog in there and he's breaking every freaking rule, all right? And and it was so, so magic because of what you pointed out, Rob, that he, I really think he acts by not acting. He acts by yeah. trying to to actively listen for the first time ever mm-hmm. to these words he already knows and respond as he would in that room with so whatever temperature it. is and whatever he had to eat for lunch that day. He's going to react that way. So you see that a lot. And I think that comes out in his comedy, too. Like sometimes I forget which movie it is, but I think it might be The Professional. I think he could like at one point is completely irrelevant to the plot, but he like has a little gas and he's still talking, but he's like, <laughs> And that's real. Like, we do that. And, mm-hmm. and I think that makes him a really lovely, lovely character actor and, and such some a of huge us do that talent. More often than others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other that little yeah. tiny room with no ventilation going? <laughs> <laughs> <I'm just> <laughs> Rob, don't insinuate I have bodily gas. Don't insinuate this at all. I don't and, think I have to insinuate anything. <laughs> Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep 
with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And that, uh, that does it for our cast. We're going to go over a couple other images here. Got some other things to talk about. Is yeah, right? I do want to say, can you call up the MI5? There are a couple. We've talked about them already. Um, but there are a couple of really high-powered, very talented actors who who lend Let's themselves to this movie. Um, two of them are in the first ten minutes. And this is the third. This is Vanessa Redgrave. And yep. she plays oh, Max. And uh, we'll talk more about her role. But she's an international arms dealer. And uh, Ethan Hunt uses Max to expose the mole. At, at Langley, mm-hmm. back at the CIA, and has to do it very deftly because she is a hugely powerful human being yeah. in this in this scenario, and and she's Vanessa Redgrave. She's gorgeous and lovely and talented. It's like yeah, so she of course now she's um, in her mid eighties. She's maybe I don't know maybe retired from acting from a storied acting family. The Redgraves are a storied acting family, but she's very much that class of like Helen Mirren. Judy Dench, who can also kind of look. Yes, they're they're very proper English ladies, but they can also, you know, not they take themselves de- too they, seriously. They've got a and death stare. Great. They've yeah. got uh, both of those ladies have an absolute stone cold death stare, and it sells really well. And they yeah. have they have gravitas. I mean, that moment she appears on the screen, Max Zero was originally written for a man, mm-hmm. right? And so they, you know, Vanessa Redgrave pops up, and you've been expecting Max, Max, Max. You've been expecting a man the entire time, and boom, it's Vanessa Redgrave. And I'll tell you, if not. For Emilio Estevez and Jack Harmon, Max and Vanessa Redgrave would have been my favorite thing about mm-hmm. this movie. Exactly, she's yeah. fantastic. So I'm so glad you brought her up. She's yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to miss it, but there's they're so brief, yeah. those three roles. Emilio Estevez, mm-hmm. uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, who is on screen right now, you can't see Robbie, and uh, Vanessa Redgrave are really l- lent an enormous amount of talent and are yeah. the epitome of there are no small roles, there are only small actors in this mm-hmm. movie. They they take tiny roles and yeah. make the movie so much better. And I we are going to move on to sort of talk in general. So yeah. I want to say, like, one of the reasons this movie works for me personally is it is all popcorn, no filler. Yeah. There's no gravitas here. There's no yeah. nothing serious here. But each popcorn is the perfect kernel of popcorn is the <laughs> thing about it, right? And you get that by getting Vanessa Redgrave to take this very, very important and yet smaller part than she's used to. You get that by having Emilio Estevez be like, sure, I'll be uncredited. Just make sure I die spectacularly. <laughs> do you, <laughs> you guys, know, do we have thing. any information on... How, how does someone who's a star like Emilio Estevez get into this and go uncredited? All right, let me let let me let me dive into that. Okay, so, Robbie. Um, as A intimated earlier, it was on purpose, um, mm-hmm. and a couple things. Probably one thing: um, Tom Cruise not taking twenty million dollars and instead taking a cut at the end mm-hmm. gives them extra money to pay extra money to bigger names. So that's probably how you get Kristen Scott Thomas and okay. Vanessa Redgrave okay. and Emilio Estevez. Now, remember, this is back in the mid-90s, so we don't have instant internet anything, right? They can sneak somebody onto a film set and most times get them the hell out of there before anybody knows who it is. Today, you you just can't do that. There's cameras everywhere, Right. right? So the idea was, let's not even put his name in the credits. 
And then when he pops up in the first couple of scenes, people would be like, that's freaking Emilio Estevez right there. That's, that's you know, hello. That, yeah. That's Gordon mm-hmm. Bombay. It's a nice Easter I mean, egg, we're, right. We're, we're rolling, man. Mm-hmm. And then the idea is, let's get somebody really recognizable. And then when he dies, people are going to know, okay, this is serious. Because mm-hmm. this movie starts, if you didn't know anything about this movie, you think this movie is going to be about that team of people and figuring out what's going on and working together the same way the show was. And then De Palma turns everything on its head by killing off the first IMF team. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of had that same thing when John Voight dies, quote unquote. But then, of course, he comes back later in the movie. It turns mm-hmm. out he didn't die. So throwing somebody like Emilio Estevez and letting him be the first dead guy, letting him be so likable that everybody wanted to see more of him in this movie. Mm-hmm. And then having him get, you know, like skewered. By the top of an elevator. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty freaking gruesome. <laughs> it's right? pretty gruesome. We don't see a drop of blood, and yet we're all like cringing. And they were like, okay, this might be something serious that's going on right. here. And, and because, because when it comes down to it, it's uh, a movie about another movie, right? Mm-hmm. Getting the knock list and getting all the names becomes a movie where somebody's out hunting people on the knock list, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. this is, this is the preamble for what another movie could be. And yet, it's the movie. And so you've got to step up that thought that anybody could die at any minute. And mm-hmm. it happens in the first 10 minutes, thanks to Emilio Estevez and him, nobody knowing he was in this movie. And to your point earlier, Robbie, like if, if they're going to sneak him in in 1996, he, the vast majority of his work is in a elevator shaft. Mm-hmm. Or in a in a small confined yeah, room, yeah, or totally. in a everything's interiors. I yeah, mean, it's, it's an so o- it's you an can do that anywhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And and who knows if they shot on location, which I believe they at least shot some of it on location. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's either in a studio or he's somewhere in Europe. And you know, Europeans don't care what us Americans. Are we have a comment time, from right? from David Lamb in the chat room. Uh, MI franchise had a huge influence on other movie series, notably James Bond. That's arguable. James Bond. This is uh, James Bond. Kind of set the stage and invented the style of movie. But uh, Jason Bourne and Salt, to definitely a lot of elements of those that you see from Mission Impossible in those things. One thing and that I, I think I found- David's probably talking about how the James Bond took it at this point. Oh, takes ramped a it left up. turn and it becomes exactly. less yeah. campy, less about the gadgets, and that which eventually leads to Daniel yeah. Craig's James Bond, which you get which you is get one a right. best Bo- Bond after Mission Impossible becomes much more of a sympathetic character. Sean Connery is yeah. well, we won't go along with this, but Sean Connery is exactly the Bond from the books. If you've read a James Bond book, Except he is a he is a psychopath. An absolute kills right. anyone, has no remorse whatsoever. So you go from Sean Connery, then you get Dr- Roger Moore, a little campy, then this influence and it moves in and Daniel yeah. Craig, who's, yeah, who's yeah, outstanding. Yeah. But, this is a good uh, but also to this point exactly like um we we also need the the Bond franchise to grow with us as a society, and this helps do, do that. This helps uh, Daniel Craig become again a psychopath, and the you know the the Bond he's supposed to be after the freewheeling sixties, where it's all about the sex and the martinis, mm-hmm. and the seventies, where it's all about the sex and the martinis, and the eighties, where it sort of gets a little less about the sex and a little less about the Still martinis. Still the martinis, yeah. but not as much sex. <laughs> the right. vespers, anyway. Yeah. Getting back to Mission Impossible, here's a fact that. A and Rob dug up that I was unaware of. This reminds me a lot of my fascination with the first Saw movie, where if you watch Saw the first time and you're telling a buddy about it, you're like, oh my God, it's so gory. There's so much blood and guts in this movie. It's just, it's incredible and horrifying. You go back and rewatch it. 
There's almost no blood and guts in Saw. There's a lot of the scenes like this one scene, they pulled out this guy's intestines and looking for, he was nuts. It's like, that's all done in shadow in Saw. Yeah, I had to go happen. back and rewatch it. It, it did not happen to remember head. it. <laughs> yep. And Mission Impossible does not feature any shootouts or gunfights. Ethan Hunt never even fires a gun in the not first film. Once. Only five gunshots occur throughout the entire movie that is something i did not know i will and go back. one of them is john is jim phelps pretending to shoot himself so one of them's not even a real yeah. a real shot at someone else yeah. and i'll go back to what i said at the top of the general discussion here like this is a popcorn movie with with absolutely perfect popcorn and no substance right there's not a message about spy culture there's not a message about international warfare there's not a message about guns there's not a message about <laughs> anything there's not a message about this is how you treat men this is how you treat women this is how you treat couple none of that it's just all perfect popcorn and this is one of those things if it gets too gratuitously violent it's a little less perfect if it gets now, too now, gratuitously bloody same thing yeah that has not carried on in the rest of the billion-dollar franchise. <laughs> at all. At all. At all in any of those things I said. Not one of those things I said. Except but for maybe the message. We might not still have a message. Yeah, well, there's still not much of a message. No, Excellent no. point. Let's credit Brian De Palma, though, because I want to talk about Brian De Palma okay. for a minute. Because, um, you know, his, his milieu is psychology, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, how do I show people on a screen what's going on inside people's heads? Right? How do I do that? And he is just, I don't know, I love Brian De Palma movies. There's, Me too. I, I, I can barely think of a, a Brian De Palma movie that I wouldn't watch, right? Um, and he's just on top of everything else. So, right, like he's all about the psychology. And so the idea of a gunfight to him doesn't make any sense because mm -hmm. how do I get inside somebody's head when someone's firing at them very quickly, right? Because mm -hmm. all he can do is run. That, that's not, that's, that's instant. That's not thought. Um, and he just uses... All these moments, he, he stays on, a, you know, a close-up, a half second longer. He, mm -hmm. he shoots everything from these weird, like, ceiling angles. It's like one random shot of Ethan reaching up and grabbing something off a top shelf. He had to reset for an entirely different camera to shoot that one shot. Why do we need to see Ethan reaching up and grabbing something off the top shelf from the aspect of the top shelf? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's unnecessary, and yet it's beautiful it's well done. It's so well edited together. And I give Brian De Palma just a huge amount of credit for that because he, his, he, he wants to see film as art and he makes sure that in a billion dollar franchise, there can still be art involved in that. And, and that's what he does. I'm so glad you mentioned because I, I am completely with you. We should start a fan club for Brian De Palma. I think <laughs> the work that I, he does. I guarantee there's some out there. All right. I know, yeah. but we should start ours because we're, we're smarter yeah. than everybody, mm -hmm. obviously. Wow. But I you make an excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. Here's my thing. I completely agree. There is no point, no reason, no rationale for the point of view when Ethan, re like, we see this also a lot on the trains where mm -hmm. they, they do this very long shot of walking or this very long, I have to get all the way there. And we see the camera pan there before mm -hmm. Ethan moves. Uh, we see all of that. But then we see from the, the point of view of the shelf, and I I agree there's zero reason that needs to happen for the story that is being told. But for the viewers at home, that makes Ethan and us, 
isolated together. That's what that mm-hmm. does. It gets Ethan into our heads, right? It's yeah. like this That's is what, what Ethan for. is seeing. And he does that so subtly and so often with, like you said, with like one second delays. And you even see that early, early, early back in his very early stuff in Carrie. Carrie doesn't become Carrie for like five seconds after the blood, after mm-hmm. the pig blood. It's mm-hmm. just this kid oh, yeah, this who's slow been motion. so bullied mm-hmm. and is yeah. standing there like the literal last moment she's the same person. And I won't dwell too much on this, but he holds but that just her a, eyes, her eyes blast right? open with all that. All and that's all De Palma, her, right? Like that eyes. And yeah. boom, that's De Palma. And that's, you are. And, so and we're all it. sitting there like, oh, somebody do something for just <laughs> one second too long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Before her eyes open and everything changes. Yeah. Uh, The best part is De Palma, De Palma wasn't, De Palma was actually kind of falling out. He hadn't had a big moneymaker in a few years. I I guarantee if he had been going along, there's no way he would have signed on to do this movie. Mm. I don't care who's in it. It does seem out of his milieu. Yeah. Some TV remake? What? But De Palma's kind of like, well, I really could remind people I'm an excellent director and <laughs> I like money. So um, <laughs> if we make a big blockbuster hit, it could pay me for a while to go back to doing the smaller scale stuff that I like to do. And, and it's De Palma that convinces Cruz, let's go to Prague, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is right after communism falls, right? I mean, oh, that's Prague right. has been a communist stronghold of the USSR forever. Nobody's ever shot in a movie inside Prague unless it was done by the Soviet film department. So okay. let's do something that nobody's ever seen before. And they shoot in Prague. And it's just it's just gorgeous. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. And it was it was a perfect setting. And it isolates the entire team. And that isolates Ethan Hunt once everybody else is gone. It's 100%, just brilliant. Yeah. It's just brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's super talented. And it's a it's a terrific meeting of the minds, right? So Cruz is already Tom Cruise at this point. But he's not Tom Cruise, a director at the, or a producer at this mm-hmm. point. Producer, right. Um, even though he's got Kathleen Kennedy, even though they've got all that going on, it's still nascent. It's still new. Brian De Palma is not yet who he is today, but he's clearly in the mm-hmm. 1990s. He's Brian De Palma, right? So that was a terrific meeting of like, I see what you're trying to do. I also – because they were turning everything on their heads. Mission Impossible was a staid 60s good guy TV series. Yeah. Yeah. And they're turning it all on his head like, yeah, we're going to ruin all and that. And it does so well because they work together about making something new and weird. Since the star was the actor, was the producer, was the guy who hired the director, mm-hmm. they could make an awful lot of Who was the guy who said, keep mine $20 million. They pretty much, Paramount just said, all right, do whatever the hell you want. Right. And we're said, we know we're going to make our money we're, back. It's going to be fine. We're going to Prague. We're good. And speaking of money, this is another tidbit to drown. Now, you guys in the computer world may know this, but I'd forgotten all about this. Apple paid, oh, Apple yeah. Computers paid $15 million to have their computers in the movie. That is a huge percentage of the whole budget of the movie. Yeah. The money was also for print and TV ads, and Apple also launched an online game related to the movie. The company claimed that the 1996 agreement, the movie that came out in 1998, uh, uh, was the first partnership from 96, the first yeah, partnership between a studio and a major high-tech firm to promote a movie. So this is something... Groundbreak! Another groundbreaking thing about yep. this movie: this is the, one of the first movies with a high-tech computer pro- product placement paid to be in the movie. And you know, it's funny because um, watching it now, we watched it um, what Friday night, date night, maybe? Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. we watched it last night. Last night, yeah. And um, 
some of the things they they are dated, right? Like y- you can't help this, right? If you see a phone, if you see him type into the computer things, all of that is dated now because it was yeah, like sort the, of, ch- the, the chat room was, yeah. was, was, was oh more my like, God. A, a, like a Usenet server room or something. We're going to get to, we got a question <laughs> from Lonely Bob. Let's, uh, let, let's roll into the question from Lonely Bob. Okay, this is sure. good. Lonely Bob asks, which aspect of the film doesn't age well? He hasn't watched it in a while, but he remembers it was very good. Rob, uh, lead off. We'll all talk about what, what is not aged well in this movie? Well, uh, can I go right there, or do yeah. you want to yeah. talk about the technology no, side? No, go ahead. Chat yeah, room's fine. Um, Whatever you want. It's really interesting. The, the best part is, he has, so so he goes onto this Usenet. He's trying to find this uh, this um, character, Max, right? Because he knows if I can hook up with Max, Max will lead me to whoever the mole is in the IMF, right? Mm-hmm. And so he, he figures out that Job 314 is actually Job 314 from the Bible. And so he goes into all these very distinct little chat rooms. And the best part is... He has to find a different Job 314 Usenet group for every different language that he speaks so he can type the same message in there because he doesn't know which one will actually get to Max, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's spending like six hours <laughs> typing in these little Usenet groups and sending emails only via Usenet. And, you know, he doesn't have to sign into Job's account or anything. He just pretends to be Job and everybody believes him. Like, you know, he's some Nigerian princess of like yeah, yeah. $15 billion. So, by the way, I have to get back to her. Um, remind me to do that later. Okay? I do so, know this too, yeah. though. Um, in the original film, which I do not remember, of course, because I'm old. Uh, but watching it last night, when he does that, when he discovers Job 314 is really Job 314, uh, he goes to uh, opens a window that says Internet access. <laughs> and back in the day, it said Usenet. But yeah. they have changed that because they were like, oh, Lord, we can. That's that's an easy digital fix. And we can't have any of that, uh-huh. which I didn't know until until when it when it became a digital thing. They mm-hmm. changed that to Internet access uh, physically changed or that what we see is Internet access instead of Usenet because mm-hmm. it's so jarring now to see Usenet colon. Yeah. Let's <laughs> let's also point out he doesn't just Google search what the phrase job three fourteen is. Uh, he actually goes physically pulls out a Bible and has he to does. know which chapter Job is. So all of us little Catholics are very happy with him at that point. We we know where Job is in Except the Bible. I'm just saying. This little Catholic never, never, not even last night after I knew how the movie ended, connected him going to a physical Bible, which is a an important plot point for yeah. him figuring out who the mole mm-hmm. is. Right. Never connected yeah. it if uh, until just could, this second. Yeah. That's if, he one of the, if he could have just Googled what Job 314 was, we've been no good. Yeah, then he absolutely. never would he would never would have known Phelps was the That's bad guy. one of the very weird, very weird um plot holes in this movie. And of course, and I've we've watched a couple times and it, it stands up very well. It's a popcorn movie. You don't mm-hmm. watch for plot holes, but there are a couple of very interesting plot holes, like super spy John Voigt carries a Bible with him from to from Chicago, Chicago to yeah. Prague. That's mm-hmm. that's a little bit much. They rely on heavily. The one th- the one that I want to talk about though is that they never really address in the movie, but it drives me batty, is the uh Jean Renault character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who, John Renault. John Renault character who is in on the he's in on the heist from Square One. He mm-hmm. is the one who kills kills the people. He's involved in it. And then Tom Cruise randomly picks him out of nowhere. 
when Tom Cruise wasn't even supposed to survive that opening scene mm. and picks him and Renault is just like down pretending to like totally be with the whole program. It's a weird, like you, it's a weird well, flashback. Go ahead, Rob. What you, I missed? You missed, you, you, you missed a line. Okay. Claire brought Franz mm. in. Yeah. Claire is the That's one what who I missed. she apologizes later after he goes kind of nutso cuckoo mm-hmm. and says, I'm sorry, I never should have suggested him. So, which is, which yeah. that also explains everything. That explains everything. Explains everything. So, I genuinely so never believe, mind. Yeah, and I genuinely believe that Claire is sort of a supporting protagonist, not a supporting antagonist, even though she's married to the antagonist. Uh, I think. I think she's actually a protagonist. Um, and so this is another way. She's like, so she However, says, oh, I'm so sorry. I brought in, I brought in uh, Krieger, but not, oh, I'm so sorry. I married the asshole. Like, she doesn't the, do that part. <laughs> the original script, however, just so you know, um, showed a, uh, an affair scene between Tom Cruise. That's, that's the kiss that we mm-hmm, see that mm-hmm, made the trailer, mm-hmm. but not the movie. So they were actually having an active affair. Um, and it was Claire going after Ethan Hunt because they knew. So she's, okay, she's having yeah, an affair, yeah, yeah. pretending to love Ethan Hunt when actually trying to betray him. And second, she is the one, according to the original script, that did blow up the car and kill their teammate. So good, yeah. Maybe they that also maybe they explains. edit that out to make her more sympathetic. But so. they, that that is all in. Ethan Hunt's head. We never find right. out if John Voight's character actually blew up the car or Claire blew up the car. It's That's just correct. Ethan walking through the process in his noggin. It could have been her. We don't know. So for you guys, I, I if we have a little bit of time. We're doing really well time. Yeah, good. Uh, for you guys as screenwriters, I have a question. It, it, if the original script has Claire as a sort of supporting antagonist, and of course mm-hmm. we all saw, you can still watch it today, the trailer where Claire and Ethan smooch. But that never shows up in the movie. Mm-hmm. How do you guys feel about that? Like, how does your script evolve? Has in some of your work together, has your script evolved? Where like this is very clearly like this is comic relief, and they become a pivotal character, or yeah. they become. Does that happen as you work oh, through God, it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Rob, it, t- um, tell we, tell about Mall Pigs and the, the evolution, if you want to. So, so uh, our, our, the film that we wrote that we are currently in, uh, I don't know, Shopping. development, sure. I guess the yeah. stage we could yep. call it, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, it started out with a number of characters. We have switched the main character from one brother to another brother. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one supporting character that was mostly there for, um, for um, yeah. comic relief, right? Mm-hmm. To mess with the other mall pig who's kind of the, you know, the, the goofy one right. that has now become a main character. Um, and, 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 and part of the whole thing, she, her entire character developed out of the need to do some things. And we're just like, well, why don't we have Gladys do that? Mm-hmm. That, that makes sense to make it work. So yeah, that happens. And, and the opposite could also happen, right? You take people, somebody like Claire yep. and it might be, um, producers meetings. It might be writers meetings. It might be, it also can I mean, be they, their performance on screen. There's so many instances point. in movies where, okay, we're bringing this bit character and like, holy crap, we did not think this, this actor, this actress yeah. was going to do this. Yeah, and the producers and the directors off. look yeah. at it and be like, we've got to get more of that on screen. Cause that's going to put butts in the seats and it's going to sell sugar. That's what it is. Well, listen, one, one of the first movies we did on story smack was Caddyshack. Yep. And you know, the producers at one point said, listen, you got Bill Murray and you've got Chevy chase 
and you don't have them in any freaking scenes together. Mm-hmm. Fix that, right? So sometimes <laughs> you're right, Scott. Sometimes it's the performance, or sometimes it's, you know, especially when you start thinking, well, if this becomes a franchise, we really want that character to live. Now, why no one had that meeting about freaking Emilio Estevez uh, is beyond me because he went to bed great at MI5. I'm just saying. <laughs> and and, and bring in Simon Pegg, and it could have been freaking Emilio Estevez. <laughs> and here's the crazy part about that. Like, we never see Emilio Estevez die. We understand that he died. We understand that he gets into the yeah. into the whatever, but we it's never see dripping multiple blood. Multiple impales. We never see dripping blood in the elevator. We never see anything. And this movie is full of popcorn, as I've mentioned several times. He could have come back as Simon Pegg's character anyway. Know. That feels yes. like a Joss Whedon excuse is what that sounds I mean, like to okay, me. Okay, fair. Okay, I will, fair. I, but but we, one thing, Rob and I have been... We grew up together, and we role-played in D&D and Champions and all those things, and that is where uh, we learned a lot of our storytelling chops, is watching the physical reaction of people sitting across the table when we do the big reveal. And one of the rules that was always in my games when I was a game master or dungeon master was, dead equals dead, but if you don't see the body... No Odds body. are, and nobody ever sees the body of Emilio Estevez. So I would love to see Mission Impossible 7. They bring his ass back. That would be fantastic. And I'm not I saying that Listen. would work in any other venue. But but hear me out, Robbie. Hear me out, you guys at home. Uh, okay. Everything about this movie, the reason it works, the reason there's a, a helicopter in a tunnel. What? <laughs> oh. The reason all oh. that happens is because... You know, happens on a whim, especially, is because it's all popcorn, no gravitas, right? So this is the one chance you get to get away with not a parody, not a Simon Pegg, Nick Frost movie, not that kind of movie. The one way you get away with it is it's there's no message. It's all just popcorn. And we, we'd be like, oh, yeah, no, he flattened himself, you know, or something. No. And he comes back so and he, then here, he gets killed anyway. <laughs> the flattened himself thing. All right. So, I mean. He's about to take a giant metal pole right in the face. So uh-huh. unless he learned some deep throating skills from the manual <laughs> fair or something, I I don't know how you get past that. And the helicopter thing, inspired by this movie, a Brazilian helicopter guy, a uh, flyer, pilot. I know there's a word for that. Yep. How many shots have I taken? Um, <laughs> actually flew through a train tunnel just to prove that it could be done. So I'm just saying. I'm just saying, I'm saying, on a whim, you don't fly through a tunnel <laughs> that has a train in it on a helicopter. You spend a lot of time, you get a lot of insurance, and you do it that way. <laughs> but yeah, this is it's, it's such a fun thing because um, I, you, we've talked about this a little bit on Story Smack. Like, I'm much more willing to kind of roll with punches because I, I am not a writer. I don't have to think it through, mm-hmm. right? So if it works for me, it just works mm-hmm. for me. And... On the rewatch, it worked for both of us in different ways. And I yeah. today we were talking in general, about like, why on earth here, are you guys are not some mad people, about it? Yeah. <laughs> here know? are some people it did not work for. Fans of the television series, uh, <laughs> including uh, actors, um, what? Peter Graves, Martin Landau, right? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> these guys, uh, the director, uh, Reza Babai, right? Just yeah. did not like this movie. And, you know, it was uh, Peter Graves played Jim Phelps in the television series. Mm -hmm. And he was just pissed that the only guy that gets named and essentially brought in from the TV series is the bad guy. Can't do that. Just can't do that. I honestly just wish they would have named him anything other than Jim Phelps. I mean, I mean, honestly. So Martin Lando, they, 
there was there was script ideas at the beginning to bring them in as mm-hmm. supporting carriers, at least as cameos. Right. And once they saw what was happening, they all said no. Really? Oh, and they, I totally they get that. Out. That's I crazy. totally get that. And here's the the crazy thing. I'm a hundred percent with them. Mm-hmm. When they look at the script in 1995 for what becomes uh, MI1. Sitting here in 2021, they were right. The producers yeah. of this movie, the director, they, they, they were all right. Yeah. They did the mm-hmm. right thing. They, they said, like, cool, all these mores, all this, it can't, it can't yep. transmit. And unlike Pirates of the Caribbean, which legit has no backstory in cinema <laughs> it's a ride like they can make up anything they want am i <laughs> yeah. mission impossible did exactly the same thing but yeah. they had yeah. to account for the fact that they're a spy organization and mission impossible the series exists and they did it in a unfriendly way i'll yes. say very generously yep. an unfriendly way to the original series but they didn't denigrate the original series and i get peter graves Complaint. I do. But now that it's a billion dollar franchise, they were right. You get what they're doing. People come in with an expectation who knew the series and you give them that expectation for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Right. The MI, the IMF team and everybody has their thing. This is exactly like TV series. Then you freaking kill every damn one of them. <laughs> and now we're on a roller coaster ride, baby. Let's see where All this right. goes. Let's, uh, we'll finish up with one point from very other little bits of trivia about the show. I thought this was impressive. People bag on Tom Cruise all the time. People have reasons to bag on Tom Cruise, other than him being a very smart Hollywood brain, knowing the right movies to pick, the right things to involve, knowing mm-hmm. when to give up $20 million because he knows he's onto something. The trick with a disappearing CD that Ethan Hunt does to fool Franz Krieger is not a camera trick or any kind of visual effect. Tom Cruise actually learned the genuine sleight of hand to yeah. do that and make that very interesting. I assume when I watch it, I'm assuming that's cuts. There's some special coat. There's something, but he just learned the magic trick. And two things on that. One, Jean Renault standing right there also didn't realize that was going to be a genuine Is that right? hand trick. I mean, he knew that it was going to disappear. He knew the script, but he didn't know that that was going to be right. a thing that Tom Cruise figured they're going to cut it. Yeah. We'll take care of that post. And two, <laughs> to your point, absolutely. The, the whole film came in on time and on budget. Um, because Tom Cruise learned to do all those stunts himself, which yeah. he does to this day. Still. And there is no... Still does. It's amazing. It, here, if you guys are super unfamiliar with Hollywood but love movies, I will tell you the the amount of risk to take your marquee actor and let him hang from the tallest building in the world is extraordinary. And the amount it would cost to ensure that is also extraordinary. And Tom Cruise sat down with those people at lunch and was like, here's, here's what I've done, here's how I've trained, here's, what I, he, here's who I am, here's how my safety rig is going to look, and got it approved. And so in MI1, he's hanging from one of the tallest buildings in the world, and it's literally Tom Cruise. And that lasts through the entire series. Tom Cruise does his own stunts when he can because right. it's less expensive for him as a producer. There's, there's, only one, there's only one producer in the world that would let Tom Cruise do that. It's Tom Cruise. It's Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. So real quick, before we go to Rob's last point, and we'll finish up with A's last point, if you guys have not seen, go on YouTube and look for Tom Cruise Mission Impossible Knife Stunt. And watch what this crazy, incredibly rich bastard does to sell something in a movie. It's straight up bonkers. He should be on Jackass. I can't believe he did that. Go watch it. It will change your opinion of the guy overnight. 
Go ahead, Robbie. What's your last point about right, the movie? Well, the, 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 the big thing that I liked about this movie was... It's great. It's so great. I mean, just having the theme song, you know, they had U2 remade it, right? But they used the original theme song and that original, you know, at the end of the opening scene, the uh, the burning wick going, yep. you know, past everybody's name. Boy, talk about paying homage. They did. You know, even really though did. even though they, they screw everything, you know, yeah. 10 minutes in, but paying homage to the original. And that's just one of the best pieces of music written for, you know, any television or film ever. It's just mm-hmm. fantastic. So yeah. Love, Baby. Absolutely uh, love it. Last point about the movie and uh, we'll finish up. Is sort of twofold. One, I completely agree with you, Robbie. And I love that the only reason my, you know, 17-year-old niece understands who, what Mission Impossible is, is because of the movies. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the only legacy the series will have with new generations. I think that's value-adding. Because now you can see all that on, I don't know, Tubi or something. I don't know. But the, <laughs> but I also love um, just the whole popcorn. It holds up because it's all kind of fluff anyway. It and it's just sort of fun up. fluff on a Friday night kind of thing. I love that the most. And you? Oh, right. Well, I, I already gave Oh, my, you already did. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, started this, I started this ball off. So, Robbie, thank you so much. We're going to be back on uh, December 11th discussing The Matrix because there's a new oh. Matrix in late December in the, on the 22nd. Um, I know than, karate. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. That was a very impressive Keanu impression. I can't wait. I'm pretty sure the whole episode will be Rob doing his Keanu impression, and I'm very excited for that. <laughs> thank you so much oh, once again wait, for joining us. I only have us. a month to grow my hair out, though. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna sign off. Thank you so much. We'll see you next month. All right, and I'm Bye, muting Rob. And Rob, you can jump off anytime. We've got a couple of hackers waiting to get in the Zoom room, so I'm leaving the Zoom open because I kind of want to see where this goes. We'll do this after we shut off the stream. But go ahead, Angel. So that, as you know, was episode 76 of Story Smack. You can find Scott and I online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter or Instagram, and I. And his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am at a real girl on Twitter and at a dot real dot girl dot on Instagram. And you can find us online at facebook.com slash story smack. However, I'm woefully, woefully horrible at updating that page. So you can look there or just look at Scott Sigler or facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. That's usually where we cover everything. We live stream Story Smack every second Saturday of the month. And you can find us at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler, twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler, and youtube.com slash Scott Sigler. In addition to Story Smack, we do a once weekly live stream called Sigler in Place on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. right where you're 6 p.m. Pacific time, right where you're watching this. And we release an unabridged episode of a serialized novel every week. One of my novels, mind you. You can get episodes for free every Sunday via iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Just go to scottsigler.com slash subscribe for links. And last but never least, Scott has a rad late afternoon Friday Twitch stream where he talks about pop culture monsters and you can catch it on twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler and wherever you're watching this now. And season one is going to be over in December, so check it out before yep. it goes away. And we have amazing guests on there. We just had Bronson Show on. We've got Yuri <gasps> Lowenthal coming up. We just had Gail Carriger on. So we are really um, a bunch of authors, a mm-hmm. bunch of actors, a mm-hmm. bunch of interesting people talking about Scientists. their favorite monster. And we hope you can subscribe so you can hear my books and more Story Smack goodness. 
in the future. Until the next episode. Oh, wait, we got to switch cameras. Yeah, yeah, we're going to switch We got to switch. If you guys listen to the podcast, we have cameras and stuff. You should join us for the live show. It's really fun. We will talk to you all real, real soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. 